Netflix has petabytes of data and thousands of workloads running across that data every day. These workloads generate movie recommendations for users, create dashboards for data analysts to study, and reshape data in ETL jobs to make it more accessible across the organization. Over the last 10 years, data engineering has become a key component of what makes Netflix successful. There are many different engineering roles who interact with the data infrastructure at Netflix. These include data analysts, machine learning scientists, analytics engineers, and software engineers. Data engineering at Netflix has come a long way from the days of Hadoop MapReduce jobs running nightly and generating reports of the most popular movies. As data engineering and data science has grown, the tooling has expanded. The people in different data roles at Netflix might use Apache Spark, or Presto, or Python, or Scala, or SQL, or many other applications to study data. But in recent years, there is one tool that has stood out for its ability to be distinctly useful. Jupyter Notebooks. A Jupyter Notebook lets a user create and share documents that contain live code, visualizations, documentation, and many other types of components. In some ways, it is like a shareable interactive development environment. It allows other people to see how you're working with your code and why you're making certain decisions. And it's also a tool for building interactive, user-friendly applications. You can embed videos and images in a Jupyter Notebook. A Jupyter Notebook stores both the code and the results of an application together in one place. And by combining code with the results in one document, you can have context around why a certain result came out the way that it did. Matthew Seal is today's guest. He's a senior software engineer at Netflix, where he builds infrastructure and internal tools around Jupyter Notebooks. Matthew joins the show to explain what problems Jupyter Notebooks are solving for Netflix and why Jupyter Notebooks have quickly grown in popularity within the company. We are gathering feedback for our 2019 listener survey, and you can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash survey to tell us how we can improve. We read every piece of feedback, every survey, because we want to know how to adjust the direction of the show. That's softwareengineeringdaily.com slash survey. And we're also looking for sponsors for 2019. If you're interested in reaching the 25,000 daily listeners or the 50,000-plus subscribers to the show, you can check out softwareengineeringdaily.com slash sponsor to learn more. And we could use your help. You can help us out by sending an email to your marketing director or your CMO or your CEO. Many people are actually surprised by how effective podcast advertising can be to get their message out to technologists. And it's often difficult for us to convince advertisers to buy podcast ads directly, but if they know that developers in their organization are actually listening to the show, it can be really helpful to us. And we invest heavily back into Software Engineering Daily. You can rest assured that your sponsorship dollars are going towards growing our product offerings, and delivering you improved content. And as always, you can send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. We are scoping out what we're planning to do for this year, so if you have show suggestions, I would love to hear them. Jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com, and let's get on with the show. Matthew. 
Matthew Seal. You are a senior software engineer at Netflix. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Uh, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Today we're talking about Netflix and data. Netflix has petabytes of data. There's lots of jobs running over that data, lots of engineers working on applications on top of that data. Give us a brief overview of the data infrastructure at Netflix. Yeah, so the data infrastructure at Netflix is um, it's very Amazon-focused, so the whole stack is sitting on top of Amazon servers. And one of the interesting things that Netflix did pretty early in the process before other people kind of jumped on this was they, they stored all of their distributed data in S3 rather than HDFS or some of the other systems connected to Hadoop. And this gave them the ability to kind of upgrade and, dis- and distribute and scale on top of Amazon's infrastructure instead of having to manage it themselves. And this then this has created a lot of swirl around how, how to think about big data and distributed data. In particular, I think a lot of the systems where that you can have independent systems develop without being too integrated has been a pretty big advantage working there. Um, in terms of other technologies, there's, uh, I mean, we use basically uh, everything under the sun, <laughs> but I would say like Spark is probably the, the biggest growing and, and most commonly used system and with Pig being kind of the traditional tool used. There are a number of different roles that involve data at Netflix. There's data analyst, machine learning scientist, analytics engineer. How did you get to this place where there's this large taxonomy of roles, and how do they differ from one another? Yeah, so the large taxonomy of role is something you sort of see as, as the company grows. You know, you start off trying to answer particular business questions or solve particular problems, uh, and the tools kind of follow what the business need is. So in there, in the sense that Netflix started, you know, originally much more as just a serving other uh, content systems onto uh, Netflix and things like, you know, pulling in uh, other producers data or trying to match the DVD collection to the online collection, which was before my time. What happens is, is as the as the company grows and has been making their own original content or they've been trying to figure out how to continue being competitive in the market, these other roles pop up and where you need to answer specific questions in order to determine what the best choice is. So things like analysts show up because you start finding that how you do your marketing for original content or how you do decisions around uh, what the show users or what people are interested in or even regional uh, differences. Like that's a really big deal is how a particular region or an area of the world is going to respond to different content. And so that requires being able to answer questions about how people are responding to what they're seeing, how they're responding to what they're doing, which requires more and more different types of analysis and, and data collection, which then dictates you have more data to parse through, which means you need more data engineers to support those people. And it slowly becomes this like hierarchy of people all support this like top level business need. You can wind up with a lot of different tools with all of these different roles and it can be difficult to know best practices for what tools to use. How do the tools vary across the different roles at Netflix? Yeah, that's actually a really interesting question. And in particular at Netflix, there's a lot of like smaller like groups of people who are all working kind of towards their own goal. And then they try not to, we try not to dictate everyone use the same exact tools because we know different people in different circumstances are going to be more successful using tools more specialized to what they're uh, trying to achieve. Um, what, what that results in is there, there being a lot of different tools and it's a good and a bad problem. And actually, a lot of the work I've been doing is, is helping for some of the really common use case problems where there's a very clear pattern of of how we should approach a, a particular problem, like orchestrating uh, ETL, for example. In those spaces, you know, a lot of people are solving the same problem with different tools. So we're trying to consolidate a few tools there without you know turning off all the tools available for people who need more specialization. 
I would say the tool the tool list that we have is pretty expansive. You know, we use everything from you know Tableau to, to all the different big data systems like you know, Druid and Spark and all of that. But there's a lot of different reporting, orchestration, and, and CI tools that are all omnipresent. With all of these different roles and all of these different tools, you can wind up with redundant work. You can have a data scientist do some exploratory analysis, and then that exploratory analysis, when doing that, they might write some script that would be super useful to somebody in another area of the company, but collaboration is is really hard. How do the different data people collaborate with each other across the organization? Yeah, and actually, you know, it's not just collaboration with, you know, potentially people focused on the data. There's also collaboration on, on the tooling, as you mentioned, other things. I would say in general, it's something that Netflix is probably trying to solve better. I mean, it's one of the value props with adopting notebooks heavily is, is making that more possible. I can talk about that more later. And I would say today, generally, like within a team or an org, there's kind of each of those orgs has their own system for, for how to understand what's there. For the big data platform uh, in particular, we've been really emphasizing trying to make this uh, big data portal our centralized landing location that has the ability to search and uh, identify useful, useful code and data. And what, when you're looking for answering a, a problem, like you tend to, we want to make it so that you go there to to find out what you should do and where you should look and to find examples of what else is being done. Today, most of the sharing is done by your team knowing kind of what adjacent teams are working on and and making sure that people meet up on a periodic basis to understand what other teams are doing so that you, know, you don't have as much replication of work. Let's talk about notebooks. What is a Jupyter Notebook? So Jupyter Notebook is, you know, in essence, is just a JSON document, which represents code snippets in these delineations called cells, as well as their outcomes, like all their logs or outputs that they generated, coupled all in the same document. And that gets a little bit confused with like the notebook interfaces. So uh, the notebook document is just a very simple way to store what code is being executed and how it actually executed. And it's meant to be in a way that's shareable across many different platforms. The notebook service itself, something that hosts a notebook and renders it, is is basically just a front end to serve that document and follow the protocols and specs that the that the notebook requires to in order to operate. And at the end of the day, what it really means is this is just mostly like describing an interactive coding environment that can be hosted and to you know have a record of, of how that was executing. Notebooks were popular for, uh, I think, a longer period of time in academic research before they started getting increasingly used at companies. Can you describe a little bit of the history and, and the different use cases for a notebook? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the, the history is pretty rich. I mean, I was even using them back when I think Jupiter just came up. I started using them for doing uh, like talks and, and demos of what I was working on. But, you know, overall, the history of Notebook kind of goes really far back and into spaces where you had uh, kind of a branch in how IDEs were developed for you want to do iterative coding, in particular, where you have uh, long running processes that kind of are expensive to compute, but you want kind of a REPL that's sitting there that's running, but with code parts that you could rewrite on demand. And so the use case of this was really attractive for machine learning, mainly because in machine learning, you end up oftentimes doing very expensive either ETL data collection or data cleansing and then you're you're iterating on some small piece that's cycling on how to how to analyze that data and once in a while you need to run the code further up 
uh, the stack, but you don't always want to rerun everything because it adds a lot of time to iteration cycle. Uh, and so also the traditional use case was kind of when you had these exploratory or scratch pad or kind of iterative cycle where you didn't want to repeat all the work. It was a really good form factor for following that type of code execution. And what's happened since then is that the tools actually been used more and more for both reporting and for kind of doing a more deeper dive on how, to, how you would solve something. But this ends up creating friction when you, you do a deeper dive using a notebook because the the notebook you end up putting all this code into, then you have to retranslate it out into another program, which requires you to kind of rewrite what you did. Um, and so one of the things that's been changing recently is, you know, if you've written a well-written notebook and you have it ha- operates the way you expect, we actually have started to shift at Netflix to actually just schedule that notebook. So you can actually run the notebook as you prescribed it without having to, uh, you know, report it to another form factor. For people who are unfamiliar with the uh, the the topic of a notebook it might be a little bit unfamiliar so i think i want to explain it a little bit more how would you compare the usage of a notebook by a data scientist or a data engineer or a data analyst that notebook usage how would that compare to how a software engineer like an infrastructure engineer would use an ide yeah, so I think the place where this compares is any place where you want to have code where you're rerunning it. So like complex IDEs tend to have the ability to you know, run a particular unit test or I debug this particular section of code or rerun this subprogram that's already been specified. Uh, and the notebook is kind of tailored somewhat to that type of use case experience where because you have code broken up in these cells and they each log independently what's happening, you can run the cells, like you tend to group cells, like all my imports are in one cell, and then I'll have some constants in another cell, and then I'll have, you know, maybe a f- couple functions, I have to, helper functions I've defined that I want to have here that aren't, you know, necessarily important enough to put into a library. And then I'll have like, you know, kind of logical pieces of how my program's going to execute. A lot of the traditional use of notebooks has been how you think of like a script. So maybe in an ID, if I were developing like a .py script where, you know, I just wanted to execute something that I could call on demand. That's a pretty common corollary. But here instead, you've broken the script up into some discrete pieces so that you can manage them independently. Notebooks have taken an increasingly important role within Netflix. And I was pretty amazed in reading your posts and watching some of your videos about just how deeply notebooks have taken over Netflix and how you've changed the infrastructure to support the usage of them. Uh, for an engineer at Netflix, for a mach- let's say a machine learning researcher, or a data scientist, one of these data roles that are using a notebook, what have the notebooks replaced? What were they using before that? Yeah, I think it's an interesting question. So uh, to give a little bit of context, so at Netflix, as you mentioned, it's not just like a few users using this. Like I think it's something like 10 or 12% of all Netflix employees have edited a notebook in the past month. The use case that they were, they were using before for tooling was, it was a mix of things. It was either I very unorganized. It was uh, something like uh, I have just some scripts that I have somewhere in S3 and I've, I've put them there and uh, then I forget about them and the next person comes along has to kind of rewrite stuff because they don't know where or how I organize my code. Scripts, just like Python scripts or Bash scripts or something. Yeah, R scripts, Python scripts, Bash scripts. Yeah, so that, was, that happened a lot. And you also had a lot of like writing code that would interact with a tool and then you would try and build it into the tool as much as you could. But then when you move tools, you, know, you would kind of have to rewrite everything. 
So I think it's been kind of a, a, a slog to make it happen and get there to just make your, your machine learning model work. Now, that's the traditional use case for notebooks. I think the other side with the like analyst side of things is actually that the role is so is such a new and growing role that we didn't have very many tools or solutions for those people because we didn't have enough investment in making their lives easier. So I think for a lot of them, you know, they've been relying on having a, not necessarily a tool do these things for them, but another engineer. So you'll have an analyst or machine learner that leans very heavily on data engineers to, you know, translate something they've sort of hacked together in a script on their computer or someplace or in some system that we've built. And then they have that data engineer really help rewrite the whole thing. Whereas here, I think you're getting a lot more self-service where people are writing the code into a notebook that they can they can run and track and share easier. And then they don't they don't actually have to lean on another engineer to transcribe whatever they've generated in different places in the, into something that can be reused and shared. When, when you decided to make, well, I guess Netflix decided to make a big bet on notebooks, I've heard, I've heard you use that term a number of times, big bet. What did that entail when there was a decision to, to double down on, on the notebook usage and say, okay, we're going to build a lot of infrastructure or supporting tools around notebooks because these things are so useful? What did that big bet entail? Yeah, so actually there was a, a memo that went around Netflix, and the memo was labeled Notebooks Everywhere. And it, it was sort of a, an ode to this is a tool that's being used rapidly by the company. It's something that, that's being adopted very heavily outside of, you know, maybe the traditional engineers. And it was sort of a why not use this for other things? And a lot of the reasons that were, you know, kind of listed there for why people haven't used notebooks traditionally were things that, hey, these are all solvable problems. And they actually have a lot of value in, in the composition of a notebook. So it was, it was basically opening up the idea. There's a few cases where the notebook can be used with relatively low risk to your normal day-to-day operating procedures. And you can kind of start to you know ingrain it into other use cases and then start building the tooling and the support for it. And so the big project that really kind of jump-started from a small team working on notebooks to many more people working on notebooks was the scheduler project, which I kind of landed on back about a year ago. And that that project was basically to help consolidate our orchestration and and scheduling projects where you say have a uh, an ETL script or a report that you need to run on some cadence or after some data is ready. And the tooling we have for that, we have a lot of tooling for that. And a lot of the tooling replicates what it's doing. So one of the bets we were doing was moving to a single scheduler for the majority of this type of batch work. And it was built entirely off of notebook templates. So even even though users may not know that they're running a notebook, rather than describing templates within code nested deeply in some repo, we actually wanted to expose what we were doing and how it was operating much more uh, forward-facing to the users. And so that means is the like 40 or so templates that we supply for like common patterns of execution you want to do on the platform, they are all notebook-based. And so when the user actually runs it, they kind of specify their parameters and pass everything through. And at the end, the outcome is actually a notebook. So if they want to see how it ran or what it ran, they can always go click on their notebook link and go even replicate exactly how it executed. Before we get into the discussion of scheduling and uh, some of the, the, the detailed infrastructure that you've built around notebooks at Netflix, I want to focus a little bit more on the basics of notebooks because I think there's going to be people who are listening and they're thinking, okay, this is sort of like an IDE where I can write scripts, where I can execute my code. I don't understand why this solves all these problems around 
collaboration or you know simplifying the tooling. Can you help us clarify why are notebooks so useful? What is the big differentiator versus other ways of developing software? Yeah, I think probably the, the two biggest differentiators are going to be the fact that you can have visual representation of what you're executing. You can generate graphs. You can generate, uh, much like if you've used some of the tools like MATLAB or, or other or RStudio or other systems like that, you can basically visualize and log and see what's happening right next to the code that's executing without changing your context or switching context or having to know as much about what code generated what outcome. And you get nice visual representation that's a little more friendly to maybe the less traditional developer crowd. And then the other advantage is the the fact that this code is broken apart into different cells. And that may seem like a really like trivial change, like couldn't you just have different functions you run? And that's true, but the way it gets represented is that you actually have this code that's like both physically on your screen and logically isolated, but is rerunnable. And the emphasis of where you can kind of focus on what you're developing on in a linear-ish fashion where you're kind of going through. And then when you find a problem, backing up and fixing something without having to necessarily like jump around and find everywhere where you, you need to make code edits. I would say that it's not a tool which replaces all development or should replace all the IDEs or anything like that. And I think that's been a little misconstrued uh, in a few conversations I've had where there's still a very clear home for IDEs. Um, and I think notebooks are going to get better and better until there's less differences between lightweight IDEs and notebooks. But I do think that for the use case where you want users want a guided experience to developing, but don't want the very heavy feeling of an IDE or the very like integrated, have to know everything that's going on around it experience with maybe some of the lighter weight editors. It gives a kind of home for those people that are in between those those different skill groups or those different use cases. All right. Tell me if I have this right. So for the last, I would say, two and a half years doing this show, I've talked to a lot of different people about the frictions of developing a machine learning model or developing some complex data operation locally and then trying to take that to production and all of the frictions that arise from that. And just as an example, maybe you'll have a sample data set that you're running on your, your you keep on your local machine and you use that sample data set to do some exploratory analysis. You want to look at charts and graphs. Maybe you're using a BI tool to do that and then you're you're tabbing between your BI tool and your your IDE where you're writing a script to to do some data cleaning and to do some data analysis and you're hoping that you'll be able to extrapolate the results that you're getting on your local machine to whatever this would look like in production when it's on the huge distributed computing job. And then in reality, there's a lot of difficulties in, even once you get it working on your local machine, getting it to production, the fact that maybe you're writing it in one language on your on your local machine, then you hand it off to a data engineer, they have to rewrite it. Maybe they're using a different kind of computer or they're using a different kind of uh, processor or, or just the data set is much bigger and perhaps some of the data is unclean. And so testing it, you know, the, there's there's an emphasis on you want to be able to test this stuff efficiently. And I think Notebooks solves a problem there. But, but basically the idea is that any friction that we can remove from the inconsistencies of the environment in which this is running in sort of development versus running in production versus any of the phases between development and production, 
you want to eliminate those frictions as much as possible because this is this is difficult enough as it is. And what Netflix saw was that notebooks are something that seems to be an interface that we can use consistently through all of these different processes. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that hits it pretty well in the head. And actually, my background, I actually started uh, on the machine learning side of things. So I intimately know the frustrations of trying to get your code to production in a way that's going to scale or, or even just run. For sure. That, yeah, that's definitely been an emphasis on, on trying to make it so that there's fewer points of friction. So people, I think the term that gets used a lot in Netflix is actually self-service. We want to make these systems, both machine learning and analysis, more self-service oriented. Like a user should be able to describe what they want to do, do it, and be able to productionize it with as minimal support from other people as possible. So what's the process of developing my notebook locally and then getting it into production? And, and and I guess maybe you could give an example of a situation when we would want that to happen. Yeah, for sure. Um, and actually, there's a few ways you can think about it from local uh, development. One is you you could be developing actually on your machine and you've launched the, you know, like a Jupyter server or a Jupyter lab or one of the other uh, frameworks out there to run a notebook. And you could launch that yourself and then develop the notebook locally. And then you, you could actually push it the same way you would normally push think code, right? You can put it in the Git. Uh, maybe you have some CICD tooling to get set in the S3. And then you could you could refer to that notebook object as a thing you want to execute later. I would say most people actually at Netflix that are doing the notebook development are using our managed notebook servers. So we have a, a suite of servers and you can like launch your own to figure say how much resources you want in your notebook server. And you'll, we'll actually boot up a, a container that has the notebook server up with all the things installed that you might want to use. And it actually mirrors the, the execution environment that scheduling that notebook would have. But let's say either of these paths, you've got notebook either in you know, in S3 and Git or in your notebook server, we actually, you know, mount these file systems and make them visible to any of the schedule jobs. So all for us, all you have to do to schedule one of these notebooks is copy the URL that you're you're looking at and then write a few lines of YAML and specify that URL is what you want to execute. And then we'll snapshot that notebook for you and then we'll run it based on when you give it to the scheduler, that version of the notebook moving forward. And then you're able to do things like independently tweak the resources you need or independently be able to move where that no- how that notebook executes relative to other code. There's an ecosystem of extensions to notebooks that you have taken advantage of at Netflix. Can you describe some of the extensions? Yeah, there's, um, there's quite a few. And matter of fact, this is actually still like an ongoing story. I would say there's a plethora of of uh, things you can add on to a notebook environment. We try to keep it generally minimal so that there's not too many things that are um, specific to one environment. But one set of tooling that we use quite a bit is around the uh, Interact project. Um, Interact is like an open source set of extensions or or rather uh, a rewrite of the front end for some Jupyter notebook interfaces. And it's more, it's React-based so that it can be componentized. And then those components can be shared and used in different places. And a lot of the other uh, systems and tools that run notebooks also kind of pull some of these components, the Interact designs. So we use that to give a sorry, better... Sorry, as in React.js? Yes, as in React.js. Um, we wanted to kind of, if you look at the classic, some of the older notebook infrastructure for the front end, it's built with older front-end tooling, and it was really hard to upgrade that tooling in place. So a lot of teams and, and tools have sort of built new rendering front-ends using using modern uh, technologies. 
So we use we use those tools a lot to to help give a better experience. Okay, so one extension is Papermill. Papermill allows you to provide parameters to a notebook. Can you describe why would you want to parameterize a notebook and some use cases for Papermill? Yeah, and actually Papermill is the key to why is the key to why we can schedule notebooks reliably. It's the key to like kind of flip on its head uh, some some ideas around notebooks. So before I describe exactly what Papermill does, one of the limitations with notebooks traditionally is that it's editing the document that represents what it's doing in place. So as I'm making code changes, as I'm running running different cells, the uh, notebook object is actually both periodically and when you explicitly save, saving back to the original document store. Which means if you make changes and then you delete a cell and then you say, oh shoot, I need that cell back, uh, you better hope it's in one of your checkpoints because it could be gone. And so much like editing, you know, in an ID without, you know, committing or something like that, your code. So what Papermill actually does is it, it what it says is it says, okay, we're going to isolate the uh, source of truth of what we're executing. So the input notebook from the outcome that came from running that notebook. And that combined with parameterization means that you can take a notebook and really make it a template that you can programmatically configure to execute against different targets. And then you can see exactly how it got configured and exactly how it ran each time without overwriting any of your sources of truth. So the library is actually pretty small, but what the library does is it it reads from a source and we have many different sources you can read from like S3 or Zero Blob or your local file system. It pulls those uh, that file in, that JSON document, and then it finds the appropriate place based on tags, or if it doesn't find any, they'll put it at the top, a place to inject a new cell, which has code that represents all the parameters you passed. So you give it a bunch of JSON parameters, it's gonna convert those JSON parameters into actual code that gets executed at runtime. And then as each cell executes, it saves the document as it currently is out to the output path. So you usually we give like a unique output path based on you know the context of while you're running plus a UUID. Uh, and we dump the notebook there. And so what happens is, is while it's executing and when it completes, you get to see both the visuals, the logs, and the code that got that set for exactly that run. And you can always go back and take that notebook and reproduce what ran at that time by just run. You can actually we even put a button in there so you can just click clone to my local environment and it'll clone to your, your notebook server and you can just play with it there. Is it an important use case to be able to have a notebook that you write and execute it and then have the output passed as parameters to another notebook? It is. that It doesn't get used too often, but there's a few machine learning use cases where people will actually... So there's some tooling, so much I've been working on advancing, where you can actually save data in the notebook as you're executing. So you can do things like save the result. Like I did a, an experiment and I want to you know, I want to store what the confusion matrix was. So I can record that confusion matrix right in the notebook. And then if I pass that notebook to a particular place, I can actually read it later on from another source, either another notebook or another job, and find out what the outcome of that notebook was by using this library to, to pull out the information that was saved. Uh, and that is one use case for, for beyond that where paper mill is uh, used. Though I would say usually we end up actually persisting data that's important to tables in S3. So for us, like many times, if it's really important information or you want to pass it along, we have like other systems already in place that we plug into. So instead of just passing, like if you were doing, let's say you had a notebook for a data cleaning operation where you, or data enrichment, where you take a geo and you enrich it with the most recent location or the or the uh, the, the nearest location like uh, according to 
uh, Yelp or something, the the most uh, you know closest restaurant, so that you want to identify what restaurant somebody's sitting in while they're watching a Netflix movie, and you're just getting the geo. So you're running a little notebook to calculate the the nearest location. You wouldn't want to just pass that geo to the next notebook and and then do some more execution, like what other movies should we recommend to them, given that they're sitting in McDonald's in North Dakota. Uh, you would want to save that data in S3, and then perhaps another notebook would just read from S3. So because of the history of Netflix, we have a lot of mature tooling around managing tables in S3 or tables in other systems that source of truth from S3. So a lot of times we lean on that because we have a lot of good fundamentals there and it's well understood how it behaves, how you access it, all the tooling knows how to get to that. Um, so we wanted to lean on not reinventing the whole world, but making a, a you know notebooks a, a different way to enter into that world. So here, definitely, we do a lot of data transposing where you're going to enrich, augment, combine different tables and generate some either temporary or permanent outcome tables and then consume those downstream, whether that be a Tableau report or whether you have some custom visualization that reads it or some other notebook job, which actually reads that and does more further computation. Can we give a few other examples to help illustrate this in in people's minds when you're talking about data enrichment or uh, creating dashboards for people? Maybe some some real world examples. I don't know, lists of movies or statistics or something. Yeah, actually, and I was actually realizing I needed to give earlier. You asked for more examples, and I, I didn't give very many by the end of it. That's okay. Um, I, ga- I gave you a double question, so it's it's my, <laughs> I was the original sin. Oh, good. Um, yeah. So, like one here, here's a perfectly good example. So, um, people have been using, uh, and this is a good combination of notebooks and data. People are using this new notebook template that they've generated where they want to find out during a particular title, when do people rewind? Like when do people, what parts of the title do people rewatch? What are the interesting parts of the show? And what they did was they made a notebook which runs a uh, query that executes against the um, our event table, which tracks like different events that were taken uh, on behalf of users in the system. And that notebook, you can specify a title that you want to look at. So uh, one example we used was you go look up Frozen, right? And you go find, hey, I, I found out what, what was running for Frozen. And then we actually gather all the click events, aggregate click events for that. And we go ahead and find out, hey, how many users were watching it at any given minute of the show? And then uh, you can actually see where the it looks like a linear graph going down, and then there's a few spots where the, the if you back up, the plot jumps up for like two or five minutes. Um, those are different places. If you if you haven't guessed, uh, those are the places where the songs start. So people actually rewind. Uh, somebody probably everyone's kids, and so they rewind over the songs that are really popular from that show. But it was something that got pulled out of the data by just looking at the title and seeing where people were watching more than other places. And that's all done programmatically via uh, a query at the top of this notebook, followed by this template, which does a a very nice visual display that shows the graph, the title pictures, and then generates links, which you could actually build as an embedded video if you wanted in a notebook as a media type to be able to play back those sections that were popular. Wow. So this would be an example of a notebook template? Is that what you said? Yeah, this is a template that people are sharing among among like content teams that are trying to do analysis on shows. The template being 
you can reuse this for other movies? Yeah, absolutely. Because it has an interface at the top where you select the movie, you like type in the movie you want, you can do the same thing by parameterizing it with the paper mill library we talked about before. So you could run the same notebook and just pass the parameter of movie title is frozen or, or whatever, if you know some code of the name of the movie that you want to look at. And then it would you know run this ad hoc or run this uh, scheduled in the background and then save the outcome someplace. So you wouldn't have to rerun it iteratively. You could just go look at the end result. But because it's a notebook document, you can actually still interact with that document when it's done. So all the media types that you output, you can interact with on any front end like you would normally with a, a traditional report. And I take you could also take that template and fork it and find out when people are fast forwarding. Yeah, exactly. You can make small tweaks. And that's actually a really common thing. We like want to promote the, the well-made notebooks so that users can take those, get ideas, iterate on them, share, reshare them for new use cases. Are these notebooks mostly used for this kind of exploratory data analysis, or are they also used for prototyping machine learning models that are going to go into production and do things like give people recommendations? I would say it depends on the team, but but both. It's also used, you know, as we mentioned before, it's actually now being used for all the batch work, like all the all your Spark and Pig jobs that used to run on the system via kind of older tooling is now also all running using the libraries that we've built via notebooks. But I would say that for analysis and machine learning purposes, it, it really depends on the team and the use case. If you're doing something on your own and you're exploring an idea or a model, it's very, it would be very common for you to kind of try a notebook and then be running every day on like small tweaks of that notebook while you're trying to figure out kind of the best outcome. If your team that's already developing in a tool that's more that's maybe been here a little bit longer, you might still stay within your tool a bit more and make a model that runs in there. Though we haven't seen a lot of interesting use cases where people are still using the tools that they're used to, but they're, they're still wrapping it with a notebook so that they can separate out how they're operating. And then the move to production now is is a different story than it used to be. I would say traditionally at, at at larger companies with big data systems, the story about once you get your model done is okay. Now the hard, now the like tedious part where we're going to rewrite everything you did in another in another way. Here, there's a decision to be made. If your notebook is built in a way that is modular or parameterizable or easily made, so you can actually just tweak that notebook and then and then schedule it. And we have a fair number of users doing that. We also have a fair number of users that are, that are just staying within their ecosystem on the machine learning because they, they want to make it more familiar to their, their neighbors. But I think given the number of people that are using notebooks now, even that story is starting to change. If I recall correctly, much of the machine learning tooling is written in Java because it's like if you're using Spark, you're you're in Java, but there is an interface into Java or into into Spark with, with PySpark. So are you, are you saying that some of the machine learning users are staying within the Java world? Actually, that's an interesting thing because uh, one of the big initiatives we've been working on is trying to make the the Scala Spark experience better. What actually, it, so notebooks aren't isolated to only executing Python. This is maybe a, a misconception of how notebooks are, are uh, set up. Notebooks are literally a protocol for executing code that are not language specific. So as long as you follow the protocol for sending messages back and forth, you can actually run with pretty much any language. Matter of fact, if you go to like the Jupyter, the Jupyter page and look at all the supported kernels, there's maybe like 30 different language, different languages represented in those kernels. And kernel is a, is a, 
uh, notebook representation of, of a program that can execute the code within a cell by a t- particular name. So, for example, you might have a Python 2 kernel, or you might have a uh, Scala Spark kernel, or things like that. So, I would say, yes, people are generally keeping in their tool. The language boundary is becoming less and less of a thing for that purpose. So a lot of the Scala devs actually been using Zeppelin notebooks, which is a variant on notebooks separate from Jupyter that just has a different take on how to approach the problem. Um, we've been trying to consolidate them on the Jupyter, mostly just so we have one notebook infrastructure and we're not supporting two. The other place where people maybe haven't been using notebooks explicitly are with using, they are actually using Python, but they have like really good tooling, which has partial integration with notebooks and it's going to get more in the next year that allows them to define their, their flow of work that they're executing on and, and their model iteration gets kind of abstracted away from them. But even those tools end up using the same scheduler and using the same tools that schedule uh, everyone else's work. When you're running some of these data science jobs in a notebook, they might be very resource hungry jobs, like a, a a Spark a Spark job. You know, you might be looking over I don't know terabytes of data and doing analysis on that. And in order to do that, you need to have a way of deploying your notebook to run across a Spark cluster, I believe. Am I getting at why you decided to build all this scheduling infrastructure around notebooks? Yes, um, because what ends up actually happening is you, your notebook can run in maybe two different modes. You might either be running that notebook where you're doing all the computation locally. Like I have something that's that's collecting all the data, running it within the notebook on the server that's running the notebook. That might be something like where I would put data into, say, a pandas data frame and do some analysis with some tools on it and then come to a result. Um, that's one execution pattern, which is common. And then the, the other pattern is actually where your notebook is really an integration tool. It's defining what other systems and ecosystem tools you need to connect to to actually do the real work and then orchestrate it all from that notebook. So, for example, we have templates that let you spawn up your Spark job or your Presto job or Pig job or any of these other types of, of systems where you're really defining the inputs, like I'm defining the code I want to run, I'm defining, and that could even be in different languages, SQL, Scala, Python. And then I'm defining like all the configuration, like it needs to run on this cluster because I know it has enough resources, it needs to uh, set the driver and executor memory, all, everything you would think of from an ETL system, which we can kind of give sane defaults for in this notebook environment using the libraries that we already have for other tools. And then when they actually execute these notebooks, many times those notebooks are really just running jobs on the ecosystem we've already built for doing other work. So if you're running and you, you want to federate out your Spark job, you're going to use the same job federation tooling under the hood that all the other jobs that are federating work on, on the platform use. It's just that the the calls to the libraries which make that job run are now being represented in a notebook, and then we can collect results and visualize them a little bit better automatically for you. Give an example of a of a workflow that you would need to, to schedule for a notebook, something that would consume lots of data or lots of resources, and take me through the execution path of this distributed scheduler infrastructure. Yeah, so there's, maybe we'll give you one example where um, it's actually, you're re-templatizing the same notebook many different times, and you're distributing the work. So say, say for example, you need to do some analysis on the on what shows are being watched in each different region. So let's say every country code or even down to maybe say state or county or, or some other delineation of um, space. Say you have a notebook which says, hey, given a, a given a particular region, 
particular set of days, I can tell you know what's the most popular show in that region, broken down by a few different factors, maybe by let's say the length of the subscriber, how long the subscriber's been on there, maybe what else they watch, things like that. And that that might be a pretty heavy job, right? So if you think about the number of events in the system, like you know we're getting you know trillions of events a day. That means you have very large tables behind this, so it's not ideal to be you know, pulling those tables down all the time. So in this case, you might make a notebook, which, hey, I'm gonna isolate this so that the notebook will run for a very specific region. I'm gonna run it just for, let's say, uh, the UK, and I wanna have it for the last 28 days, all the different views and, and these different breakdowns. And then I run that, and it, it's great. I've got an answer, and so the content producers there can, can use that. But then let's say, we do wanna do this for all the regions, because actually Netflix tends to do changes or updates or new uh, releases globally all at once. So you wanna really get a global view of things, but that's too much data to run in one place. And it's it's a lot of information to come back. So one thing we actually do here is say you've got this working for one region, you wanna run it for all regions. Well, what you can do is we actually support the ability to fan out in your, your orchestration where you would say, for each region in some long list of regions that I wanna run, run this notebook past the region that you're currently iterating on and any other configuration you wanna pass. Like let's say uh, we're gonna focus on views in the last 28 days. We're gonna say, hey, the the time range is 28 days, uh, particular region is region K, and now execute this notebook. And that might fan out to you know, 100, 200 different notebooks that are running the same exact notebook with these just couple of minor configuration changes. And you can let those all run in parallel and then collect the results at the end. And then at the end, the notebook there would say, hey, I'm gonna go read the outcome results from the tables that each of these notebooks generated. And I'm gonna build an aggregate view that lets the user like select through these. And at this point, maybe I would do that in a notebook. Maybe at this point, I would actually funnel that data to another report that already exists someplace else. But in that sense, you've, you've created the one you know, template notebook that you've been able to develop locally on gigabytes of RAM, and now you're distributing the data across terabytes. And even within each of those particular notebooks that are running, they actually can be set up to run, you know, this computation is really being run as a Spark job or as a Presto job, so that that computation is being orchestrated, you know, funneled out to the compute cluster. And this is sort of like a, an ecosystem view of like, this is actually a real workflow I'm actually describing that someone built like the moment we had notebooks available in the notebooks, we had this fan out option. And then they started running this so that every week they could give this report up to their team that said, hey, what's the value add of the last 28 days of different shows? Right, so I can imagine this, this just this workflow where I'm a developer I'm a or I'm a data analyst and I am just doing this on my local machine and I'm looking I'm building some kind of report and building sort of the n equals one case for this report and then in order to run the the case for for all of the all of the data then I would just execute it across the, the data infrastructure which would be a lot more resource intensive and so in order to to do this you use a scheduler called mason can you talk about mason and why you built it yeah so when we actually looked at the the scheduling problem there was a lot of different options and a lot of people were using different schedulers that have uh, different pros and cons 
Um, we also looked pretty heavily at using Airflow. As a matter of fact, we actually had support for Airflow for, for quite a while, and the, the servers were up for all of last year that we were kind of playing with. But we ended up going with Mason, and Mason is, was an internal schedule tool that was really designed around uh, machine learning infrastructure needs. So it has a lot of features around this like fan out or this uh, conditional execution. And the integration with, with the platform for that tool was better than the other tools we had. So we actually ended up choosing that one mostly because the open source options that we saw didn't solve all the needs we wanted anyway. And this one already had platform integration and team that had been developing on it. So we, we ended up leaning into that tool itself to, to solve our workflow execution. And we actually built a layer on top, which was more oriented around how we wanted to think about the, this data execution with notebooks and with uh, very you know, trivial config options in order to specify what you want to run. And it's, it's a workflow executor. So if you think about it, it's just executing a DAG of work where you describe different nodes. And those nodes could be notebooks or they could be just you know, arbitrary containers that execute. So I guess I, I didn't quite understand. Why did you, cho- why did you go with Mason over, over Airflow? So in that case, the, the end point that we ended up choosing to was one, we didn't have a ton of Airflow users already. Um, and this tool already had a user base. And the integration with the rest of our platform and its tools and its identity and all of those type things was already partially or completely present on Mason. So we ended up choosing it really because the tool was the most likely to succeed in the next year for for the project rather than because the tool had, you know, completely superior feature sets. And in reality, like we could have gone with Airflow and been perfectly fine. Just we met an investment there and and the investment would have been really for Netflix uh, Netflix specific things so it wouldn't have been helpful to the open source community either way. So we chose one. Can you talk more about the importance of these kind of DAG tools, the tools like Airflow or Mason and why they're so important to a data infrastructure? Yeah, so it's extremely important to be able to specify DAGs of work, which is if you're not familiar with graph theory, that's a directed acyclical graph, which really means it's a tree um, that doesn't circle on on itself. And the reason why DAGs become important is because oftentimes you'll have these pipelines or workflows where you need to basically do some initial aggregation or initial computation or data collection, and then you're going to have different downstream work that relies on that work being completed. So you may, for example, if you need to send an email report on the status of some, some state of data, usually have to run a query first, which generates that data. You might have to join it with other data. You might have to put it in a particular system, and then you might have to query from that system. So there you might have a complex set of four or five different units of work that you actually have to execute. And they have to execute in a certain way with certain dependencies, both on jobs and on data. That's really where specifying a, a workflow and a DAG becomes very useful because you can you can orient and visualize how the work is going to execute ahead of time and afterwards in a way that, that really facilitates these kind of like dependency-driven data pipelines. I've talked to a number of different companies about data platform, whatever that means at different companies. So, <laughs> you know, at, at DoorDash, it means one thing. At Uber, it means something else. But it's it's something similar. It's you've got data that's coming in as 
online transactional data, and then oftentimes that data is ETL'd into a place where it can be analyzed at large scale, and there's lots of difficulties around around that data platform. And it seems like notebooks solve some aspects of the, the data platform. Can you talk about the other predominant issues that you're seeing in the Netflix data platform or what you've seen at, at other companies? Yeah, so it's an interesting problem. A, a lot of companies have a lot of the same pains with data platforms, and and it's really a problem that distributed systems are complex and hard to do. Um, so the problem is is that distributed systems are hard and complex to do. I would say some of the key points where where we still see a lot of friction is even just and what we're working a lot this year and, and continuing the next year is like visibility and discoverability of what data is important and of understanding when something goes wrong or when something is going to go wrong, how to catch that and remediate it efficiently and easily. Um, that's definitely been one of the larger pain points. I would say for less mature platforms and however you describe platforms as you said it's it's a little ambiguous i would say that there's there's more emphasis on getting tooling that supports users to be able to do what they need to do we still have that problem i think it's an ongoing problem for everyone but definitely when you get to the phase pass where okay the basics are possible everything's kind of there next you have is well this works and i can keep track of it at this scale but the next 10x scale the next 100x scale it gets harder and harder to get visibility into where are the problems why is this job not running? Why is data not ready? And you start getting a lot of these sort of critical pi- paths through your through your data pipelines that are really important that they execute on time or on a particular cadence. And so those areas were getting like awareness of where work needs to be done to improve or to monitor or to track what's happening is, is a really critical thing that e- even the best companies still are working furiously on solving. As we begin to wrap up, I just want to leave people with uh, kind of the the important takeaways for what notebooks have done for Netflix. So what I have understood from this conversation is that they really help with the process of uh, writing jobs that, for example, create uh, detailed reports, and maybe they're highly interactive reports. They're reports that have videos embedded in them that show, here's where people rewind for the movie that you just released on Netflix uh, yesterday. Maybe you want to send out that report to everybody that was in, in charge of a content team that had a new release on Netflix over the last week. It's It's useful for that kind of thing. It's also useful for people that are maybe developing locally on a, uh, a data enrichment tool. Maybe they're enriching, they're just enriching like a couple movies on their local machine with, for example, the geo that it is most watched in. And they want to, you know, they want to add that to to a field in, in an S3 bucket, and, except they want to do that for all movies. So they test it on their local machine, and then they uh, deploy it to large scale. Are there any other use cases, any other examples that people should take away for why these things have been so useful to Netflix? Yeah, and actually there's there's one more that's been extremely useful. And this is one of the ones you know we referred to as a, a strategic bet, as, as you talked about earlier. Um, and that's around the reproducibility and visibility on what's executing in the system. It gives a huge benefit there. And let me describe that for a second. So if you have a notebook which ran and... Somebody wrote it and that person may not even be at the company anymore or it's on a team that's the person's on vacation or no one can be reached and it goes wrong and there's five things downstream that need to use that notebook. Um, Traditionally, when a pipeline goes wrong and you have to start debugging it, you have to go find out where their code is, go read their code, 
try and parse what that's doing, back up to whatever libraries they use, and you might spend a long time trying to explore what actually executed, how did it run, like which log line corresponds to what line of code in this in this uh, execution. And so it can really slow down and make it very tedious to be able to have other people support work that's been written by someone else in the company. And one of the really big benefits here with the notebook is we have a very consistent interface for what executed. You can you get this artifact, which is both visually oriented and has the code that ran right next to it. So I can see for a particular log line exactly where it got came from. I can see exactly like any kind of debug information we put is like associated with the lines of code that was executing. And it's a familiar template for everyone. You don't have to figure out what language is this script written in, what language is that thing written in, or even where it is. Like you get a familiarity of, of evaluation on what actually ran and it's very it's like the first link we go to debugging anything is okay what's in the notebook and you click it and you go get to visualize what's there and sometimes if you're still confused you can actually pull that notebook and run parts of that code to understand what it was doing and why why it failed and that's given us a huge boost and to be able to be able to support different users without having as much training or specialization so you have you've built a lot of infrastructure for auditing and debugging notebooks when they run and something goes amiss even there there's not much tooling needed mostly it's just we point to the notebook and a little bit of tooling so that you can launch that notebook in your in our own ecosystem what advice would you give to somebody who's listening to this who has data problems at their company and they want to start using notebooks so they want to start putting notebooks at the center of the development process at their company yeah, I would say the first thing to do is really actually don't force all your users to immediately have to develop in notebooks. Make notebooks an, an optional path where maybe you start doing all of your ETL templates with notebooks and you very closely control a few special notebooks that you share with people to use. And you maybe make it so that the user doesn't have to know they're using a notebook to get started. That actually was really successful for Netflix. Like we have you're using everyone's using notebooks all over the place and then everyone else is also using notebooks and they don't even necessarily know it till they start debugging or they want to like slightly change how one of these templates works um that's been a good like natural intro to it and i think having a few very controlled paths where you have an integration problem that a notebook would help describe well and that you could share is a good place to start like i have a bunch of tooling i need to talk to three systems and and have some outcome and it's going to be a page of code that's a great place to, to find that in a, in a notebook and to lean on the libraries you've already developed. Matthew Seal, thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been really fun talking to you. Oh, yeah, definitely. Thank you for having me. Wow.